Father, it's with joyful and sober hearts that we celebrate a day like Memorial Day. We give you thanks, Father, for the freedom that you have given us. And we acknowledge that freedom truly is given by our Creator to us. But we recognize that one of the means through which you secure freedom in nations is through the sacrifice of men and women in the service of that nation. And we thank you, Lord, for those who've gone before us. God, I pray that we would steward our freedoms to the greatest possible purpose, which is for the glory of Jesus Christ. I pray we would use freedom of speech and assembly to boldly and clearly proclaim the truth about Jesus under the authority of the Word of God, the Bible. Lord, I pray that you would give us, I pray, a bold conviction and dedication to live our lives and use our freedoms for the advance of the gospel of Jesus, not only in this nation and community, but around the world. Lord, I pray that on this Memorial Day weekend, we would be renewed in our commitment to Jesus. And we're reminded that true freedom only comes through Christ. That freedom from sin, its power, its penalty, and one day its presence only comes because Jesus paid the ultimate price in the sacrifice for our sins. And so, Lord, I pray that our eyes would be turned to Jesus, not only throughout the weekend, but specifically in the moments that follow as we study your word. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we give you thanks today. And it's in Jesus' name we make our prayer, and all of God's people said, amen, amen. Thank you for praying with me, church. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. You know, this week I I thought how much of life is filled with questions that we have to ask and answer on a daily basis. I don't know if you've ever thought of that before, but every day we live, we're asking and answering various questions. What am I going to eat for breakfast? What am I going to wear to church? What am I going to eat for lunch? Yeah, a lot of my questions have to do with food. How am I going to get to that restaurant without having to drive on Courtney Parkway? What insurance will I have now that Jake from State Farm is my pastor? I'm sorry, I just had to throw that in there. We're constantly asking and answering different questions every single day. And we also know this, while our life is filled with questions, there are some questions that are significantly more important than other questions. Take, for instance, the question, will you marry me? That's a pretty big one, right? It has a lot of implications. Some people will never ask that question, and and God has ordained that some would remain single for the rest of their lives. And the very fact that they'll never ask that question has a significant implication for every day of the rest of their lives. While others who do ask someone to marry them or are asked by someone to be married realize that that single decision has a huge impact directional impact for every other part of our lives. So we ask and answer questions all the time, and there are some questions that are more important or essential than other questions. And there are two essential questions that are infinitely more important than anything else you'll ever ask or answer in this life. They're more important than where you will live or what job you will work or even which person you will marry if you get married at all. The two essential questions I'm referring to are this. Who do you say Jesus is? And who does Jesus say you are? 
Friend, whether you realize it or not, those questions hang in your face today. And they will be pressed before you in the text that we're getting ready to study. And you need to know this. Nothing will have a greater impact on this life that you are living now and every day for the rest of your life and even your eternal destiny than your answers to those two questions. Who does Jesus say you are in response to who you say Jesus is. Those questions are so central to the text, as a matter of fact, that they actually form the big idea for our teaching this morning. And usually I read the text, we look at it a little bit, then I give you the big idea of each passage of Scripture. I want to give you the big idea for this morning based on those two questions so that you can be looking for it as we read our text together. Here's this morning's big idea. Nothing is more important than what you think about Jesus and what Jesus thinks about you. Nothing is more important than what you think about Jesus and what Jesus thinks about you. So here's what I want you to do. As we read our next section of study in the study of the book of Mark, think about that big idea. Think of those two questions that form that big idea and begin looking for them as we read our text. What people think about Jesus or what Jesus thinks about people is filtered all throughout the passage we'll be reading this morning. So if you will, look with me in Mark chapter 3, and I'll begin reading in verse 13 through the end of the chapter. I'm reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. Verse 13 says this, And he, Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, which I think is a great motorcycle gang name, but that's just another thing. Verse 18, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister 
and mother. This is the word of God for us this morning. And here's what we need to see. In this section of Mark's account of the life of Jesus, he is using a technique that's called a sandwich technique. And I love any Bible technique that refers to a good sandwich. And so he's using the sandwich technique in which he's, he stacks together several stories that come together to form sort of a whole picture of something. He starts and he finishes with a reference to disciples who've come to gather around him. There, in that, that next layer, he has a reference to his family, his mother and his brothers. And right there in the center, there's an encounter with the scribes who claim that Jesus is filled with an evil spirit. And so he's stacking all of these stories together, and he's, he's allowing the common thread to basically become this. There are groups of people who say different things about who Jesus is. And then in response to that, Jesus begins to look at different groups of people and point out who they are. As a matter of fact, there's a famous quote from C.S. Lewis that I almost used a few weeks ago, and I'm glad I held off because as I studied our text for this morning, I was reminded again of this quote, and I'm certain, um, even though I don't have any proof, that this text was the foundation for what C.S. Lewis famously had to say about Jesus in his book, Mere Christianity. Listen to C.S. Lewis and what he has to say about Christ. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us He did not intend to. We can all go home. I can't say it any better than that. So let's head on out. No, you see the the, the reference I'm making there. Lunatic, liar, or Lord. There are no other choices based on what we see clearly presented to us about Jesus. All three are found in our text. And so let's walk through our text a little bit at a time, and just see the answers we, we find about that question, who is Jesus? The first one is this. Some say Jesus is a lunatic. Look at verses 20 and 21. Then he went home after he had gathered on the mountain with his disciples. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Guys, this is wild, isn't it? These people who had grown up in the same household as Jesus, his earthly family members, they hear all that's going on around Jesus. Crowds of people are following him. No doubt they're hearing about the miracles that Jesus is working, him casting out demons. And certainly they're hearing the teachings of Jesus, namely that through various ways he's claiming to be God in the flesh. And his earthly brothers hear that. And they feel so 
absolutely bewildered by Jesus that they believe he's crazy. They believe he's gone out of his mind, is what verse 21 says. Now, I don't believe this is including Mary. We, we find in the narrative passages about Jesus' birth that the angels made it very clear that Mary was, was, was being given a child who was the Son of God by the power of the Holy Spirit, that he was even going to be the Messiah of Israel, the Christ. I don't think that this is talking that Mary thought he was out of his mind. As a matter of fact, in John 7, 5, you can look at it later, John specifically specifically tells us that it's the earthly brothers of Jesus, his stepbrothers, half-brothers, if you will, that are the ones who didn't believe in Jesus. So these, these men who grew up with Christ, they hear what's going on and they head out to deal with Jesus. But I want you to notice what verse 21 says they intended to do. They intended to seize him. That word seize means to take control of or to forcibly take hold of something. It was a word that was used in Jesus' time to describe or refer to someone being arrested and put into a prison. So so that's the word that's going on with his brothers. They think he's a lunatic, he's crazy, he's out of his mind. So they go to lay hands on him and put him where he belongs, to confine him to their designated space so he can't be a harm to anyone or anything. And I realized as I was, as I was reading through this, as I was thinking through this and, and using that word even lunatic or someone out of their mind, I realized that there are probably very few people in this room or those joining us online who would go on record or even say out loud or even admit to themselves that you're willing to say that Jesus Christ is crazy. Or that he needs to be put in his place. And so it might feel like this little section is not applicable to any of us. But I really want to caution us not to move too quickly into assuming that none of the residue of this way of thinking could have ever rubbed off on our hearts and mind. Here's what I mean by that. There are plenty of people in our world. There are plenty of people in this community. There may even be some people in this room who hear the things that Jesus has to say in the word or through his apostles in the word, and they're tempted to respond like, that's crazy. You want some examples? I don't care. I'm giving them to you anyway. Jesus says this. Now listen to this. He says, it's actually better for you to give away a generous portion of your income than to live on 100% of it. (laughs) Can you believe that? There are some people who hear about generous giving and you know what their response is? They don't say it out loud, but they think it this way. That's crazy talk. That's crazy talk. Jesus doesn't know my financial picture, apparently. That's crazy talk. They live like Jesus is crazy. My question is, are you one of them? Listen, Jesus says, and get a load of this, sexuality is only, only to be expressed between one man and one woman made by God as man and woman in the covenant of marriage for one lifetime. And don't you know there are plenty of people who hear that and say, that's crazy talk. That's crazy talk. Jesus must not know what it's like to be sexual beings, or he must not know what it's like to be in my body or in my culture. They live like Jesus' sexual ethic is crazy. The question would be, are you one of them? 
Jesus says children should honor and obey their parents, that employees should honor and obey their bosses. Get ready for it, guys. Jesus says that citizens of a nation should honor and obey their governing leaders. What? He went there on Memorial Day. He's wearing red. Surely that signals something, right? We are called to honor and obey those who live in authority over us so long as those in authority over us are not commanding us to dishonor or disobey God. And there are plenty of people who live like that's crazy talk. Are you one of them? Guys, we may not come right out and say Jesus is a lunatic, but there are plenty of things that Jesus has said that seem crazy to our natural way of thinking. Even more, there are people who act like they care about Jesus. His brothers go out and care for him. I love him too much to see him do this to himself. We got to grab hold of him and put him in a safe place. There are plenty of people who just like that act like they care about Jesus but then live like Jesus needs to just stay in his place in their lives. There are places for some of us where the Holy Spirit will have to reveal this to you, but you may know it even as I say it, that there are places or things or decisions or dynamics about your life or your family where you are not completely and totally committed to hearing what Jesus has to say about what you should do there. You don't want to hear what Jesus has to say about how you spend your life, your time, your money, your plans. You want Jesus to stay in his place. He doesn't belong here in my life. In other words, do you realize if that is occurring in your heart, what you're attempting to do? You're attempting to grab control of Jesus rather than Jesus grab control of you and put him in his safe Christian religious box. Jesus, you can visit me every Sunday morning when I come to that big box on the corner. But other than that, you're out of my life. Guys, don't assume. That just because you wouldn't say out loud that Jesus is out of his mind, that you are immune to living like you think, that he's out of left field and needs to be put in his place. Let's keep reading or I'll get stuck on any one of these points. Number two, not only do some say Jesus is a lunatic, number two, we see some say Jesus is a liar. Look at verse 22. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. It was a reference to the, the Lord of, of the dung heap, the Lord of the flies, the Lord of carcasses, of filthy things. And it says, by the prince of demons, who is Satan himself. They said it's by the power of Satan he casts out the demons. You guys can stop right there. From the very beginning of our study of Mark, what we've seen is that Jesus has miraculously cast out demons and healed people through the power of the Holy Spirit that filled him completely. And we've seen how the religious leaders have had to respond to that. They couldn't deny that these people who couldn't walk before are now up running around and completely healthy. They couldn't deny that these people who had been possessed by demonic spirits were now in their right mind and healthy and happy and even holy. So they couldn't explain away necessarily the, the miracles of Jesus as anything other than miraculously enabled by some power. So they had to describe where's that power coming from. And rather than acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God who is the manifestation of God on this earth through the power of God's Spirit, they said he's clearly working under the power 
of the devil himself. In other words, they're saying Jesus is a liar. He's not God. He's not the son of God. He's not filled with God's spirit. He's a liar. He is a fraud. He is in cooperation with Satan. Notice how Jesus responds. Verse 23. He called them to him and said to them parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then he may plunder his house. Stop right there. Jesus is saying, listen, this claim that I am defeating Satan by the power of Satan is absolutely ridiculous. It stands up to no reason whatsoever. Why would Satan empower someone to defeat Satan? He says, no kingdom, even the kingdom of darkness, can stand in opposition to itself. In verse 27, he says, if a strong man has been bound and defeated... It's because a stronger man has come and bound him to defeat him. What he's saying, essentially, is Jesus is referring to the fact that he has the ability to defeat demonic powers because he's stronger than Satan himself. It's another way of him just exposing that he is God. And that's, here's what it means. It means it's blasphemous, then, to say that he is in any way evil, or in any way associated with evil. Now, we're going to come back to this in just a minute. But like that first accusation about Jesus being a lunatic, I know it might sound like a stretch for people in a room like this who've gathered on a morning like this to say that anyone would treat Jesus as though he's evil. But I just want you to think for a moment about what we're already seeing playing out every day in our world. Friends, let's not forget that even on Memorial Day as we experience and enjoy our freedoms, billions of people, billions of people live in places in this world where it is illegal, even a capital crime for someone to convert to be a follower of Jesus. What is that but a culture that says that Jesus is evil, that murders people who follow Jesus? Even more, all over our world, including this nation, Christ's ethic and his biblical morality are under attack. You guys see that? I see that. Abortion access. You've probably seen many of the polls. Several have come out since the overturn of Roe versus Wade. It seems that there's actually a majority of Americans who think that it's wrong to remove or inhibit access to abortion. So here's what's happening. When people are committed to fight to protect the lives of the unborn in our nation, those people are spoken of and treated as though we are evil and are hateful. What is that but calling good evil? Christian ethic and morality evil. Just last month, Minnesota passed a law that opens the door for children to be taken from their parents if those parents hinder their kids from receiving what's called, quote, gender-affirming care. Gender-affirming care includes anything from receiving hormone treatments to having radical surgery. So parents who hold a biblical ethic that Jesus taught in the Bible, namely that God makes us male or female, 
And that's his prerogative as our creator and not ours as the creature. And, and that God has given parents the sacred responsibility and God-ordained authority and accountability to raise their children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Those kinds of parents, and I hope that would be parents like us. Those parents will be treated as though their commitment to Jesus is what? Morally wrong or evil. Listen, guys, the closer we get to the return of Jesus, the further down this road we will be sliding. Our world is only getting more and more to the point where they will see the things that Jesus has said are good and view them as though they are evil. And you know what that is? That's saying Jesus is a liar. When we say that Jesus doesn't know best, when we say that Jesus gets it wrong, when we say the word of Jesus is not right, that is our way of saying, in essence, Jesus is a liar. That's why the heart that pleases God is the kind of heart that says, till Jesus comes again, let Christ be true and every man a liar will follow Jesus, right? We will, we'll follow, I'll follow Jesus. I don't know about you. Here's where we're going to go, though. That brings me to the third things that people say. Some say Jesus is a lunatic. Some say Jesus is a liar. But some say Jesus is Lord. Let me show you where you see this in the passage. Look at how the, the, the text begins. It's kind of in an interesting way. Verse 13 says this. And he went up on the mountain. Now notice the phrasing really carefully. And he called to him those whom he desired. Those whom he wanted. And they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Just stop right there. We'll talk more about the apostles and more about the authority that they were given in their preaching and in their ability to cast out demons in a few chapters. But for this morning, what I just want you to see is that Jesus calls to him people that he desires to be present with him, to be near him, to know him, to hear him, to follow him. And notice how they respond. Verse 13 says how they responded. What did they do in verse 13? And they came to him. You see what's that? that that's, that's saying they did what he said. They heard the voice of Jesus the invitation to follow him. They obeyed and followed Jesus. They lived in glad submission to Jesus. In other words, they yielded their lives to Jesus as Lord. So that's how this section begins. There are some people who hear Jesus and his words and follow Jesus and his words because they believe about Jesus, a certain thing, that he is Lord. And then notice how Mark intentionally concludes this chapter. Verse 34 says this, looking about... Now notice, what is it that he said he wanted his disciples, his followers to do? To be near him, right? Well, notice this. And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Listen, most scholars believe that while Jesus is certainly referring to a crowd that's gathered in this house, he's pointing directly to the disciples 
when he looks at those who are sitting most closely around him because he specifically says the people that he is pointing to are the ones who have done the will of God. In other words, they have acknowledged Jesus isn't a lunatic. Jesus isn't a liar. Jesus is Lord. And they've answered his call. They are living, just like in verse 13, 12 and 13, they're living as though their call is to be near Jesus and with Jesus, sitting at the feet of Jesus, following him to the very ends of the earth. Guys, that's the will of God that's revealed in the book of Mark. That's why the first words in the book of Mark are Jesus, the son of God. That's why the first scene that we have of Jesus is him coming to people saying, follow me, follow me. And there are people who leave it all behind to follow Jesus to the ends of the earth. Why? Because they believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord God Almighty who has authority over all things, including our lives. And so Jesus points to the people around him and says, these who hear my voice and follow me, which is the will of God. They are my family. They see me as their Lord. So church friend, I want to ask you a question. Who do you say Jesus is? And I don't just mean with your lips. I mean with your lives. Who do you say Jesus is? Let me just ask that another way. Does the way you live your life each day say that you believe Jesus is your Lord? Do you live like you believe? Does your life reveal that you believe that Jesus has the right to tell you how to live? Who do you say Jesus is? Friend, nothing is more important not even close than the answer to that question. It will determine every significant thing about your life and your eternal destiny. And for some of us in this place, we have had a hard heart and a stiff neck to the calling of Jesus. And this is the day that Christ, I believe, is calling you to lay your life down and say, Jesus, you are my Lord. My life belongs to you. If you've never done that, my prayer is this would be your day. Who do you say Jesus is. And that brings us to the second question, because embedded in this is not just this picture of people who say certain things about Jesus. It's Jesus saying certain things and specific things about other people. Who does Jesus say you are? There are two designations we find in our text about Jesus describing other people. And, and, and here's the first one. Jesus says there are some who will never be forgiven. There are some who will never be forgiven. Look at verses 28 through 30. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. That's great news, isn't it? It is to a room full of sinners like you and me. All sins will be forgiven the children of man. And praise be to God for that inexpressible gift. Whatever blasphemies they utter, praise be to God for that inexpressible gift. Verse 29, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Verse 30, for they were saying, Jesus, he has an unclean spirit. Now, I, here's what I know. I know that this could be a sermon 
all by itself. But I didn't preach last week, so I feel like I have the authority to cram two sermons together into one. You're right, it's your Memorial Day weekend. What else are you going to do? No, I, I really want to quickly move through this. And if we have to come back to this down the road, we'll come back to this. This is a section that is sometimes referred to as the unpardonable sin. Jesus is saying there is a sin that will never be forgiven forever. He says it's eternal You will never be forgiven. And throughout time, people in the church have debated over what that sin is. But I just want you to quickly notice, Jesus names what the sin is. He calls it blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So the unpardonable sin or the sin that will never be forgiven is a blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. And notice what's attached to that in verse 30. They were saying he has an unclean spirit. And here's the the dynamic that seems to be going on here. We know that Jesus is God who came to this earth. But when he came to this earth, though he was God, he lived fully as a man. That means he laid aside certain rights and certain abilities that he had as God, certain privileges as God, so that he could fully live as a man. So then in chapter one, what we find is that he begins his ministry as the manifestation of God on this earth in the flesh. Jesus is filled with the power of the Holy Spirit so that he can manifest the presence and power of God unmistakably on this earth. Here's what that means then. It means it was blasphemy for those who had stiff necks and hard hearts and in opposition against Jesus to say that Jesus was empowered by anyone or anything but the very presence and power of Almighty God. That's essentially saying the Spirit of God in Jesus was unclean. And since you cannot be forgiven unless you repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in God, those two things are eternally incompatible. You can't say that you will persistently reject the person of Jesus Christ as revealed by the Holy Spirit and ever receive forgiveness. Now listen, I want to concede, there may be some more things going on here than I'm explaining, but I just want to kind of boil down what we know to be an unforgivable or unpardonable sin. Persistently refusing to turn to Jesus as your Lord and your Savior will keep you forever from forgiveness. It will result... In you being eternally cast into hell. It's not pardonable because you will not be pardoned until you turn to Jesus in humble faith and repentance. And even as we say words like unforgivable or unpardonable, I know there are some with sensitive hearts who worry because anxiety is a sin that is near to my heart and yours. You think unpardonable and you worry, what if I've committed the unpardonable sin? I've talked to some of you who worry about that. Look again at verse 28. It holds a promise for you. All sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, He's referring to what? Those who will in repentance and faith turn to him will be forgiven of all their sin. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin as we confess and repent it. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul, many of you know his story, was someone who once thought that Jesus was evil, right? 
He persecuted Christians in the church. He was breathing out threatenings and slaughter, Acts says. And he had Christ followers put to death. Listen to what he says about himself in 1 Timothy 1. Verses 12 and 13, this man who once said Jesus was evil said this, I thank him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus, look at at this, our Lord. He came to the place of seeing Jesus as his Lord because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly in my past I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Paul is a living example That Jesus forgives every sin for those who return to him in repentant faith. Even those who at one point say that Jesus is evil, if they will bow in humility and faith and say Jesus is Lord, will be forgiven of all their sins. So listen, those who have turned to Jesus in humble faith are forgiven of all your sin. Friend, if you trust in Christ, you cannot have committed the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin is to not trust in Jesus as Lord. So those who will never be forgiven are those who persistently refuse to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior and die in their sins. And so the question becomes, what's your story? Are you trusting in Jesus as Lord? Has there come a point in time in your life when you've placed your faith and trust in the person and work of Jesus? Your eternal destiny hangs in the balance of your response to Jesus. Is he your Lord and Savior? Are you trusting in him? Because if you are, I want to close by showing you what Jesus has to say about you. He says, there are some Not those who will never be forgiven. There are some who will forever be his family. Look at verses 31 through 35. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they said, sent to him and called him. So finally, his brothers come to deal with him. And there's a crowd that's sitting around him. And they said, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Guys, at first blush, this sounds really offensive to Jesus' earthly family. But we know that Jesus isn't being unkind. He isn't being rude. He's just pointing to a spiritual reality here. That's that's as special as our earthly families are. There's a kind of family Jesus says is even more eternally significant. It's the eternal family of God. Listen to John chapter 1 verse 12. To all who did receive Jesus, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Here's some good news. You guys need some good news this morning? Here's some good news. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ, Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are part of God's forever family. You aren't just forgiven. Your family to Jesus himself. God, just think about what Jesus is saying. It's saying this, your family of origin doesn't define you. Your past failures, your personal weaknesses don't define you. 
Your fears and your anxieties don't define you. This world and all it says about you doesn't define you. You are who Jesus says you are. And for everyone who has in humble faith and repentance turned to Jesus Christ as Lord, Jesus has something to say about you. You are Jesus' family. You are a child of the Most High God. You are loved and accepted and wanted. You are an heir of everything that belongs to God. What belongs to God? Well, you're going to get it. (laughs) Because you're an heir of all that belongs to God. You are destined for heaven. You are secured by God's power. Every trial in your life, including the one you're walking through today, is filtered through the love of your heavenly Father. God is your Father who is for you. So I got a good question for you. Who could be against you? No one. Because you're a member of the family of Almighty God. And that is reason to rejoice because of Jesus. And that's why I would say at the very beginning of this that there is nothing in all of earth, nothing in all of your life, nothing in all this world that is more important than these two questions. Who do you say Jesus is? And who does Jesus say you are? Do not leave this place without knowing, settling once and for all that Jesus is your Lord. And for those who are trusting in Jesus, would you ask the Holy Spirit to press deeply in your heart in a way that would cause you to live with joy and with pleasure and with gladness and with worship today that you are who Jesus says you are, a loved, wanted, accepted, forgiven, secure child of almighty God. And because God is your father and for you, it does not matter what this world has to say, no one will be able to stand against you. Praise be to God for his unspeakable gift. Amen, church? Would you bow your heads in prayer with me? And for those of you who have never come to the place of placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord, I want to encourage you right now, would you turn to Jesus in faith? In a simple prayer that would reflect the truth of your heart, would you just acknowledge that you are a sinner who has sinned against God? And you cannot make yourself right. You can't heal your own brokenness. You need Jesus. Right now, between you and, and God, just make that prayer God, I confess that I'm a sinner that I'm broken in my sin and cannot fix myself. And then would you pray in faith a confession that you believe that Jesus came to live the life you have failed to live, perfect and obedient in every way to God the Father. That he died the death that you should have died as a punishment, a payment for your sin at the cross. That he rose again from the dead. By faith, would you ask him to raise you up to a brand new life that only he 
can empower in you. If you have called on Jesus to save you, I want to encourage you, don't leave today. Our pastors will be down front in just a moment. We would love to pray with you about your relationship with Christ. But for those of you who are saying, I'm trusting in Jesus, what part of your life today needs to rejoice and receive the truth that you are a child of God? It needs to celebrate with gladness that God is for you, not against you. That he's working for his glory and your good and everything. What part of your life do you need to just lay that down before the, the Lord as your father and say, I trust you in this, Father. Do that right now. Pray a prayer of thanksgiving and rejoicing that you are a child of the Most High God. Father, I know that we'll go out into the rest of our day, into the rest of our weekend, and we'll ask and answer an awful lot of questions about what we'll do with our family and friends, about how we'll spend our time, about what we'll pursue through the days of this week. Lord, I pray that nothing would be a higher priority to us today than to meditate on the truth of those two essential questions. Who do we say that Jesus is? does Jesus say that we are be glorified as you by your spirit would stir faith in our hearts to respond to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior help us to believe what he has to say about us belonging to your family you are our father and our work for your glory and our good in every part of our life Lord we praise you for Jesus and we ask these things in Jesus name Amen